Okay, good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Bryzer here on TNS Radio, and I hope you're all doing well. And uh, at long last, summertime has arrived in the Emerald Isle. It's, take, it's taken its time, but the last couple of days have been absolutely glorious, so I hope you've all enjoying it. And um, your special guest with, uh, on tonight, I'm sure a lot of you will have heard of him, um, Stefan Molyneux, uh, who is a radio host on his own station, Free Domain Radio. Uh, Stefan is also a self-described philosopher, author, uh, historian, and um, <clears throat> a great voice for freedom and liberty out there. And I, I think a lot of people will have heard uh, what Stefan has had to talk about in the past. I think a lot of it will resonate with you. And we're very glad to have him on TNS Radio tonight to, to share his thoughts and views with us. So, Stefan, uh, welcome to TNS Radio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a great pleasure. So, Stefan... Um, I suppose for a few people out there who don't know who you are, maybe you could maybe tell us kind of into this, what, uh, where it all started for you. Sure, I, I'd be happy to. Um, I guess I've been Hello? thinking and mulling things over. Oh, can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can you now. Yeah, I've been thinking and mulling things over for about 30 years or so. I sort of got into philosophy in my mid-teens uh, through Ayn Rand and objectivism and studied some of it in school. I did a master's degree in history and then I worked as an entrepreneur for quite some time and enjoyed that and started getting back into um, writing and, and thinking and debating uh, a little bit more. And then I started running a show because I had a long commute to my office. I ran a show out of my car and through that uh, I began to publish uh, them as podcasts. This is sort of the mid-2000s and then began to find more and more receptivity to what I was talking about and then ended up going full-time a year or two later and that's been my crazy <laughs> gig ever since which is to talk philosophy on the internet and uh, it's no ads it's just donation-based show and that's uh, that how it's how it runs I'll be speaking in Brazil in Las Vegas in in California in in Toronto I'm doing a lot of speaking this summer and uh, I'm enormously thrilled about how things are going and uh, and now of course I'm breaking into the all-important Irish libertarian market uh, through through the thin edge of the wedge of your show which is wonderful that's it it's, it's all a global thing now people are beginning to to start from their slumber it's taken a while but it's happening and um, I can see changes here as well but that, that's interesting you did a, a radio show from your car that was uh, a good way to spend your time while you're commuting yeah, when, once you get sick of audiobooks, you might as well listen to yourself for a while. Yeah. And uh, uh, I mean, I was a debater in, in college, and uh, I, I debated across Canada and so on. So I, I really always enjoyed that aspect. And the business world has a lot of pragmatism, but it doesn't have a lot of idealism. And I, I, after spending so much time in the business world as an entrepreneur, uh, I, I really, really liked the idea of spending a bit more, of exercising the idealistic part of my brain a lot more. So that's where I started getting into. Uh, the, the challenge, really, the big challenge for me is working on a ethics you know ethics it's all about the ethics and traditionally there have been two ways that ethics have been done or performed in society the one is that you have a god who'll send you to hell if you don't obey or not aren't good according to those dictates or you have a government that is going to arrest you and throw you in jail mm -hmm. if you don't do the right thing and neither of those i think have really solved the problem of uh of of morality and so I think finding a way that you can convince people of ethics and virtue um, 
without just appealing to self-interest, uh, without just appealing in, in the objectivist sense, without just appealing to a fear of hell or a fear of prison, I think it's been a real challenge, and I think a lot of philosophers have, have taken a run at it. Um, I don't think they've been too successful. I've taken a run at it, and I hope that I've been successful. We'll <laughs> find out over time. But um, I think really working, uh, helping people to understand what virtue is and why be virtuous without fear of punishment and without the rewards of heaven and the, is, is a real challenge, and, and that's really a lot of what I've been working on. Yeah, I think uh, ethics are very important. Um, I think it's been lost a lot lately in today's society, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of status-driven materialism. We have a lot of power-seeking. We have a lot of addictive behaviors, whether it's uh, an addiction to power or to drugs or to sex or to uh, status or material goods and so on. I mean, it's, we, we've, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. Uh, you know, you see these, I don't know, dare I even say kids these days, I probably, <laughs> I probably yeah. shouldn't. But it, if I do allow myself, since I'm now 45, I think I can say kids these days. Yeah. Uh, and it was no different when I was younger. So this is not anything to do with kids in particular. But when I was younger, you know, what really mattered was whether you were really good on a skateboard. What really mattered was whether you were really good at Rubik's Cube. What really mattered was whether you knew how to break dance. What really mattered was, was the kind of car you had or, or the clothes you wore or whether you were really good at sports. And so all of these empty, shallow, materialistic human tricks and human adornments were considered to be the definition of the hierarchy and what gave you value when I was a kid. And, and it seems to be pretty much the same thing these days. And I think that's really tragic that after 2,500 years of philosophy, we still have this empty baboon-style tricks and adornment as a way of, of having status and value in this world. And there's not a lot of people who say that the value of a young person is measured by their integrity and commitment to virtue and moral courage. Uh, these things would be considered ridiculous, anachronistic, and, and foolish to bring up uh, in, in any kind of youth hierarchical context. But it's really tragic, you know, I mean, because whether you know how to break dance doesn't add a whole lot to your life's happiness, but whether you're a virtuous person with moral courage and integrity, that really does add a lot to your life happiness. So, I, yeah, I think we've kind of gone astray, uh, or stayed astray, since I don't think we've got a particularly philosophical history. Uh, but um, the old call to self-knowledge and virtue is something that we still need to heed, I think. And did you study uh, philosophy at university, or is it just... Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I studied history, which is a great discipline, because you can wedge anything into history. I did some economics. Uh, my master's thesis was the history of, of philosophy. Uh, a particular thesis I had about the history of philosophy. So, yeah, I did. I did study some. I mean, a lot of uh, what I have done has been uh, self-taught or self-explained. And of course, I have a huge community. Of we have, I think, over forty million downloads now, and a very active message board. I have a very active inbox, so I get great ideas and information from around the world now, which has made it a whole lot easier to surf on the intelligence of other people's <laughs> thoughts. Uh, but um, and, and of course, you know, conversations with people like yourself around the world is, is a great perspective to get um, for, because this is not something that, you know, the conversations we have aren't going to show up on CNN anytime momentarily. Yeah. So it's great. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, philosophy is a, it's an interesting topic because it really deals with, with everything, doesn't it? It's uh, reality and existence, right? what, what we're about, you know. So it's such a wide subject to talk about and it encompasses everything. Yeah, and, and the freer we are, the more important it is, right? So you, you don't really need nutritional advice when you are toiling away in some Soviet gulag with Ivan Denis Denisovich because you just you eat whatever 
pig slop and cabbage with beetles in it that they put in front of you. But the more choices you have about food, the more you need nutritional information. And we live in a society, you know, even though our liberties are declining to some degree, we live in a society with a huge amount of choice. Uh, we can go work and live and, and be just about anything that we want to be. And so, so the more choices we have, the more we need some way of organizing these choices so that we don't have to wait for negative repercussions or positive repercussions to know whether things are good or bad for us. And so I think philosophy has become even more important uh, as we've become, uh, as we've got more choices, but it seems to have become less important. And so we end up making our choices based upon, you know, status or what's going to get us laid or what's going to make us feel happy in the moment or what's going to make us rich or whatever. And, and these things don't tend to last to, don't tend to lead to any particularly lasting happiness. Well, um, going on by what's going on here at the moment, um, we have um, a lot of people think that are saying that Ireland has gone through much the same problems as Greece and Spain and that, and you know the problems are definitely there. I don't think we're quite as bad, but it's bad. Okay, people are beginning to see that something is very wrong. Uh, they're not quite figuring it out yet, but it's it's getting there, and I think a lot of us here on TNS Radio are getting out and trying to talk to people in a kind of a nice, gentle manner to explain to them what what is happening in this world, what your government, your so-called friendly government is all about. And uh, we have, I suppose, an opportunity here in a couple of, well, in a week or two, actually. Um, we have a referendum, actually, it's next week, um, because of this European Fiscal Treaty. And um, this is a great, I suppose, if you want to call it an opportunity for, for Irish people to kind of stick the finger up to the EU, because we've had enough of it here. And uh, But I watched a video on your website about voting and I mean I have to say myself I'm in two minds about it uh, saying no to this European thing is maybe giving a message to the power the so-called powers that be and then also by not voting you're not recognizing that this whole bloody thing exists anyway so where, where would you stand on that and I, I mean I listened to your talk there last night actually I thought it was very good so do you want to Maybe give us your viewpoint on that, on voting and whatever. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I don't vote, and I haven't voted probably in about 20 years. I won't participate in a system, and I won't give that system the satisfaction of imagining that it is giving me a choice. And I don't vote for the lesser of two evils. Uh, I don't participate uh, in that system. I, I obey the law. I pay my taxes because you know, having a gun pointed at my neck will have me walk uh, quite a, a long way in the snow. But no, I don't imagine that I am going to get involved in understanding political issues. I don't imagine that the government is doing anything other than trying to ensnare me into some particular trap. Uh, I don't imagine that if I vote for a smaller whip as a slave, that I'm fundamentally opposing slavery. I'm fundamentally accepting slavery if I vote for a smaller whip and a nicer master. The smaller whips and the nicer masters never seem to get delivered, and all I'm doing is legitimizing the whole damn system. So no, I'm not a big fan of voting. It certainly is fine. It's not an, the initiation of force. It's not like you're going out and strangling a homeless guy uh, with a bungee cord, so it's not like it's an immoral thing to do. But um, I, I do not find that knowing about politics and and pretending that the politicians are going to listen to what it is that I say is all ridiculous. I mean, to vote about the EU would be to say that whatever they're telling you has anything to do with the truth. I mean, you all know how Greece got into the European Union was 
lying fraud and and falsification if you and i did that on our tax returns or a bank we, we'd end up in, in jail but these guys they end up uh with uh you know millions of dollars in their bank account uh that the uh that the, they hid their deficit through um various accounting trickeries uh for many years and then when this came out what happened the government that lied and cheated and defrauded the european union the greek government what happened well People shoveled, shoveled hundreds of billions of dollars their way. Can you imagine? You, 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 you lie and defraud and falsify your tax return, and the government says, whoa, okay, well, that's fine. Let's give you 50 times your tax refund then. Uh, or you lie on your uh, mortgage application, and when it's found out, you don't get prosecuted. You don't get any sanctions. You just get a free house. I mean, it's it, whatever they say is, is nothing to do with any truth. The Maastricht Treaty of 93 promised, what did it promise? It promised fiscal stability and responsibility. And it had all of these rules, all of these rules about how the governments had to have only this percentage of debt to GDP and they had only this percentage of deficit at 3% or whatever, and only 60% of debt to GDP and all this. And, and everybody's was blown past it and, and it's all nonsense. So whoever voted for the Maastricht Treaty, they had to sit down and understand it and say, oh, okay, well, the 3% of this, a deficit and 60% of debt to GDP and the stability and here's how it's going to be. And nothing about it was ever followed through and the complete opposite occurred. So everybody who spent all their time researching that stuff and voting on it were just, you know, throwing dust into a whirlwind. It made, it, it, whatever they talk about has nothing to do with what is actually going to happen. It's a waste of time to, to learn about it. It's a subjugation to the system as a whole to participate in it. It's got to step back and damn the whole rotten structure. I mean, was it, was it J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs who was responsible for fiddling the books. For I think it was the Goldman Sachs who were um, uh, jigging up the, uh, the Greek falsehoods. Uh, and of course, nobody ever gets prosecuted. I mean, you, you, you steal a candy bar and you get arrested uh, and uh, you rob a bank and you get arrested, but a bank robs you and uh, it's called fiscal responsibility and uh, economic stability. So, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that these people who create all these treaties and, and rules and, and uh, manifestos and constitutions, I'm not going to pretend that they're bound by anything or that their promises are ever worth a damn. I mean, who enforces all of this stuff? You're going to vote for something and, and nobody's going to enforce it. These people answer to no one. That's right. So, yeah, so, I mean, I've been, I've been thinking that I'll, I'll give it a miss from now on because it's, as you say, you're giving recognition to uh, fiction, really, because that's all it is. It's just made-up stuff that a bunch of faceless bureaucrats are sitting in an office putting this stuff together. And it's a tyranny, you know? So by either voting yes or no, I don't know if it's going to make any difference. I don't think it will. But uh, uh, Well, but, but if you're voting, you're saying that, that your opinion somehow matters to these people and that they're bound by whatever you vote for. Yeah. And, and these things are just empirically and demonstrably not true. I mean, they're just, they're just not true. I mean, they're not bound by anything that you say. And, you know, the, the, the Greek government had the, the Greek citizens vote on, um, you know, do you want this particular solution where we haircut the banks or we don't want this particular solution of austerity and so on. And 
what the I mean the whole point is just to it's to get the politicians to read the majority so they can just manipulate the majority you're just participating in this disgusting public relations scheme where you're revealing your preferences in order to be manipulated no my preference is to have nothing to do with the entire mess I don't want you people running my currency I don't want you people running my education I don't want you people indebting my children I don't want you people throwing innocent peaceful civilians in jail because they have the wrong kind of vegetation in their pocket I don't like the debt I don't like the war I don't like the bailouts I I don't like the bribery. I don't like any of it. And so to sit there and think, well, I'm going to tick a little thing off here and make the system somehow better, uh, you know, I'm it just it's it's a delusion. Um, yeah, and um, I suppose, but would you say though, for people who who want to maybe just make their voice heard, that maybe it's just a good thing just to maybe get out and just say, you know, no, or, well, even if they want to vote yes, but I, don't, I haven't seen many people who want to vote yes. I think a lot of people are, have had enough because <clears throat> people are being thrown out of their homes now. Uh, people can't afford to pay their bills. They can't feed their families. Uh, it's hitting home. We had a Celtic tiger here, bubble. It was a, an illusion of a, a boom time. All came to nothing. People are struggling now, and um, they're angry, and I suppose this is the way for them to vent it, isn't it, through the ballot box? But uh, when you kind of think about it a bit further, you have to kind of say, well, why bother? You know, and I think if nobody showed up to vote, that would, I think, be a real answer to whoever. Yeah, I mean, not, sh not, not voting is a vote against the system. Voting uh, is a vote for the system because you believe that your vote is going to count and make your voice heard. I mean, when the hell have they ever cared about our voices being heard? I don't remember as a kid, like, I don't remember as a kid anyone ever saying to me, is this the kind of educational system that you want, oh, ye of the blue eyes and the blonde hair and the curious mind and the inquisitive heart and the, the uh, intellectually demanding soul? Uh, do you really want to sit on a, in a row with 30 other children in some dusty, smelly, hot classroom and watch some bored, alienated, overpaid underworked teacher scratch up there and these squeaky little horrible cat noises on a on a blackboard and that's what we're going to call your education nobody ever asked me anything about that they didn't ask me how i wanted to be educated i mean some mm, studio that wants to sell movies to kids they do all of this market research and they test stories on kids and they figure out what kind of uh, characters they'd like and they figure out how big their eyes should be to sell the pop to them and all that. They actually do care. I'm not saying it's benevolent, but they do care about what the kids want and what the kids think about and what the kids like. The government, uh, why do they care? I mean, it's what the, the head of the American Teachers Union said it very clearly. He said, I'll start caring about what kids want when kids start paying union dues. Uh, he's there to represent the teachers. And I mean, who represents the kids? Nobody. And so that doesn't change. Uh, the, to not vote is, is to vote is to say that the system is, I'm not going to pretend that the system is participatory, I'm not going to pretend that there's any kind of contract, I'm not going to pretend that giving me the choice between these two evils, neither of which anyone is compelled to follow anyway, is anything more than an empty ritual to drug me into a kind of delusion that I have something to do with the system. Uh, you know, getting the cows to vote on how high the fences should be uh, is just a way of getting them more comfortable with being livestock, and I'm just not going to do that. Yeah, that's just... Um, we have a chat room here, um, Stefan, there's a couple of questions coming in, um, one from allegedly Dave is, uh, what do you think of Iceland's solution? Uh, we're, we're getting a kind of conflicting things because I saw something that all the mortgages were written off or something and I found out that that wasn't true and, 
But, I mean, what I have to say is I do admire the people of Iceland for standing up for themselves and doing the right thing. Now, whether they got the right people in place now or not remains to be seen, but at least they send a good message. But we don't seem to hear very much of what's going on in Iceland, do we? No, and that probably means that I think what they did was they just gave a huge haircut to the banks. And, okay, so fine. I mean, but how does that solve the problems of the system as a whole? I mean, that, let's say that Iceland does some great stuff, writes off a whole bunch of ridiculous debt, and what happens then? Well, they reset their economic system, and this is, of course, what happened with Ireland, uh, you know, the Irish tiger. Oh, let's lower taxes. Oh, let's invite a bunch of corporations over here. And there was some genuine economic gains to be, to be gotten from all of that. So what happened was, well, people's income rose. And the same thing will happen to Iceland if they've done... I'm no expert on what happened in Iceland. If anybody wants to talk more about it, I think that'd be great. But it's not going to solve any fundamental problems. If Iceland does something that is economically sensible, then it means more investment is going to flow to Iceland, more people are going to invest in Iceland, which means the whole thing is going to happen again. It's the same thing as I say, which happened in Ireland. You've got this Irish tiger. Oh, look, we're doing so well. We've got so much money. Oh, it's great. And then what happens is they use that income, they use that wealth generation, they use that capital that's flowing into Ireland, the increases in, in, in salaries. They use that as collateral to borrow more and then... Right? The smaller the government, the bigger the crash. Uh, that's what happens. That's the huge story of America as a whole. The smallest government that was ever created has now produced the largest government because small governments create free trade. Free trade enhances wealth. The governments then grab all of that wealth and use it as collateral to borrow and bribe and, and plunder and wage wars and create empires. And then the whole thing comes crashing down. It's a story from the Roman Empire to the present. So if Iceland is doing something great, there may be some short-term benefits. But in the long run, I guarantee you, it would just make it worse again. Yeah, so, I mean, what we try to talk about here in TNS is the sovereignty, like individual sovereignty and sovereignty for the country, for the nation, you know. So um, we had it here thousands of years ago. Um, we can get it back. Like um, We had our golden age, if you want to call it that. Um, I think also there's something, you know, in the Irish psyche about losing one's home. And I think that is beginning to happen uh, because of, you know, the so-called famine back in the uh, 1840s, um, which actually was a genocide, by the way, but that's another story. But, yeah, it was socially engineered, right, if I remember rightly. Yeah, yeah. so um, it's kind of, it's in our blood, if you want, and no one likes to lose their home. And uh, these, you know, there's a couple of people out there doing some great stuff at the moment, challenging these... Uh, receivers and bailiffs and whatever and a lot of these warrants aren't even signed they're not even you know and people are losing their homes or people are committing suicide uh, i mean it's un it's getting bad you know so it's really vital now that we we're out there trying to educate people a little bit how the financial system works how the legal system works that it doesn't it's not in your interest absolutely not and how you can remain in your home and stand up to this because if we don't do it, you know, all around the world, we're, well, we're in, into a tyranny. There's no other word for it. Well, and the reality is that nobody ever owned their homes anyway. I mean, this is the reality throughout the Western world is that the government owns your house and you have to rent it from the government through property taxes. And no matter how much money you give to the bank, the government is still going to own, right? So there are little old ladies in, in, the, um, in New York State where they had to raise um, property taxes or didn't have to. They chose to raise property taxes. They can't afford to pay. Yeah. 
And so these women whose houses have been paid off for 30 years, they've raised their families, they've had grandkids there, maybe their husbands died there, and they're being forced out of their home because the government owns it and has decided now. The government has graciously allowed some of these little old ladies to come and work for the government for free to pay off their property taxes. So it's kind of more indentured servitude. But um, yeah, I mean, there, as long as there's property tax, uh, there's, there's no ownership. You're just buying off the thugs to, to hang on to your square feet of footage. Yeah. Well, I think we're one of the few countries in the Western world that doesn't have a property tax, but they're trying to bring it in. They, tried, they, they brought in, I think, called a household charge here last month, and people had to register by the 31st of March. Um, now, the government kind of <clears throat> spun the story quite a lot and said, quite, you know, well over, uh, maybe well over half the people registered, but I know it's a lot more than that. I haven't met anyone who has. But... Um, Again, the word has gone out that if you sign up for this, you're going to have property taxes, which are going to increase as the years go by. Yeah, no question. As well, I mean, it deteriorates. You're not going to be able to afford it, and you're going to lose your home. You know, so right. It's uh, it's about getting the information out to people now as as quickly as possible. You know, because it um, people need to be prepared and to be able to stand up on their own two feet and take responsibility for their actions as well. And how is the tax-resistant movement going in it's Ireland these days? Well, I mean, there's talks going all over the, all over the country. I mean, it's kind of um, petered out a bit now because, you know, people who decided not to pay are just not paying, which is great. Now, they're also trying to bring in next year water charges as well. We don't pay water charges, but, I mean, we're the wettest country in the world. <laughs> you know, every second day we get a, a good shower of rain here. So... Um, uh, and people are resisting that as well. So we're, we're having, uh, you could say, peaceful resistance and non-compliance beginning to grow here, which I think is probably the best way to do this, to just not comply. And if people start doing that, then they'll start questioning, well, why do we pay income tax? You know, well, why do we pay all these other taxes? It's all about consent. So if we just pull away from that, well, we just don't consent. They can't force, they can't put everybody into jail or, or fine everybody, you know. So that's good to see that that's happening and at long last because I, I thought that we were, uh, well, most Irish people were just sitting down and accepting all this austerity, you know, when it's just plainly wrong and a criminal as well. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that the austerity is wrong insofar as it just goes to pay off banks that are getting a bunch of free stuff from the government. But uh, I also think that uh, you can't just look, I mean, I always try and urge people, you know, look in the mirror as well as look in the paper as far as all of this stuff goes. I mean, I've certainly been fighting the good fight for, as I said, uh, over 30 years now. And boy, it would have been a whole lot easier to deal with this stuff 30 years ago. <laughs> I mean, when the government was like, what, 40% the size that it is now and the debt was much less. And so people didn't want to listen to reason 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago uh, even even two or three years ago uh, certainly since the sort of 2008 and onwards recession slash depression uh, people have started to open their ears a little bit but it is also people's lack of willingness to listen to reason uh, to to stand up against that which is inevitable I mean there's no point waiting waiting until you've got lung cancer to quit smoking I mean, I guess it's fine for quit smoking, but let's let's do it ahead of time. Listen to the reason and evidence beforehand. 
So I am a little bit concerned that people are suddenly just looking at the rulers that be and saying they're the only problem. But after talking to people, I've talked to thousands and thousands of people over 30 years, and the number of people who are actually willing to listen to reason um, is probably definitely in the single digits of percentage and probably um, <laughs> not much above one. And I'm pretty good at, at talking about this stuff, and i am got a fair amount of knowledge, and I'm fairly convincing and fairly entertaining. And so I do have a little bit of concern where people just say, oh, it's everyone else uh, that is the problem. But you've had a lot of people talking to a lot of people about this kind of stuff for many, many, many years. And, you know, if you refuse to listen, to just blame everyone else for your own refusal to listen seems a bit precious to me. Well, that's me my thought. Tell me what you think. Yeah, um, it's, yeah absolutely. We have to look, at the, look in the mirror and say, well, who's responsible for all this mess? In many ways, we are. We consented to it. We've let it happen. Appraised it. Yeah. Praised praised it. It. said it was people good. You, you, yeah. People like their slavery. I mean, you, I know you talk about this on other videos about the, the, the human farm where we're being farmed. And people right. like it, you know. They, they, they think this is just the way it is and you don't question it and that's it. And that's very sad. Well, it's more than, I think it's more than that they like it. I think that they, they praise it as virtuous. Like I'm sure you've had conversations with people where you say, you know, the welfare state is disastrous. I mean, in the U.S. they've spent almost $16 trillion fighting poverty since 1964, which is about the same size as the official U.S. debt, far lower than the real debt. And what's happened? Well, you've got a huge number of poor people. You've got a huge number of broken up families. Uh, you've got a massive debt. Uh, you have collapsed economic opportunities. You've had stagnant or declining real wages. The welfare state has been statistically, almost without exception, a complete disaster for the poor. And this has been evident for many, many years. Uh, and it was beginning to be evident even when I began talking about this stuff 30 years ago, but certainly over the last 10 or 20 years, it's been completely evident. But you're bringing up these facts about how the welfare state is so unbelievably destructive to the poor, and all you get is slander about how you're just some rich capitalist pig who wants his nose in the trough and doesn't care how many poor coal dusted over children you step over to get your way. And so it, it is a little... Um, it's a little frustrating to see how upset people are getting now as if, you know, I sort of feel like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a doctor to, to, to someone and I've said, you know, for 30 years, listen, Bob, you, you got to stop smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. You got to stop eating so many Cheetos because you're like 300 pounds. Uh, you know, your heart is, uh, is about to bust. Uh, you know, you, you got to start taking better care of yourself. I tell him this year after year after year and he tells me that I'm a fool. I don't know what I'm talking about. And then he gets really shocked and surprised when he gets sick. And then he says, why didn't you tell me something, Doc? <laughs> I'm really angry at these cigarettes. I'm really angry at these Cheetos. I'm really angry at these cheeseburgers. And it's like, do you not have any reference to the conversations you've had? Anyway, it's just something I wanted to mention. that uh, Because if people just get angry at the leaders, then that doesn't actually give them any ownership for the, uh, that they have. It, just, it makes them just blame throwers, which doesn't give them any power. Yeah. Because about four years ago when I kind of woke up to all of this, I always kind of questioned things, but I never was able to put my finger on it, and it all came clear. And it's, it's everything. It's not just the government or taxes or anything like that. It's your, your own health. It's your own well-being. You know, uh, I've now, you know, I'm on a, a good diet now. Again, I'm trying to do some exercise. I'm looking at trying to, you know, starting off trying to grow stuff now for myself and be self-sufficient and just slowly break away from it. I think that's the only way we can all do that at the moment. But if more and more people are doing it, um, 
you know, which I think is happening, and I think the so-called powers that be know this and are getting kind of worried. So, you know, that's why this year could be, you know, something could happen, I don't know. We can't predict the future, but it's, you know, it's not looking great, that's for sure. But we can change it. It's all down. Yeah, and I think I've always wanted to tell people it's it's good to inform yourself about the larger socioeconomic realities of the evils we are forced to suffer under. That's all good to know, but that doesn't amount to a hill of beans uh, because you can't do anything about it. I mean, you yourself, but, you know, so people in America complain. I saw this guy give a speech complaining about the high price of health care in the U.S. The guy was 300 pounds. It's like... <laughs> You can't do anything about the, the policy of the U.S. government on healthcare, but you can drop 150 pounds uh, if you work at it. And so I'm very much around, like, yeah, you know, blame the powers that be. Absolutely, they propagandized you. They they sold you down the river. They rented you off. Uh, they rented your kids off to 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 Chinese uh, overlords for the sake of you know six quid to bribe people in the here and now. Absolutely wrong. Totally immoral. They start wars. They imprison people. They lie. They cheat. They steal. They counterfeit. I got all of that. I really do. And you can't do a damn thing about the system. But you can stop hitting your children. You can take care of yourself. You can forge better relationships with your neighbors. You can uh, build a better community within your own life. Uh, you can uh, stop smoking, stop drinking so much so that you can take care of your own health. Uh, all of these things are things that you can do which render the state. I mean, don't get, uh, don't, don't have kids out of wedlock. It's one thing that people can do to make, make the world a better place. Uh, um, you know, finish high school. Uh, you know, don't, uh, don't uh, have kids till you're 20 or at least, right? Or things that you can do that are statistical and sensible that's going to make the world a better place. Plant a garden. Uh, these kind of, you know, I'm very much the, um, you know, Candide of I Voltaire was very much around, don't worry about the world as a whole, just take care of your own garden. I really try and focus people on that because, you know, staring at the massive weight of the global financial system and its endless predations upon the body politic and the citizen's spleen isn't going to do you anything but get you uh, paralyzed with fear and frustration. But there's so much that people can do um, that has nothing to do. Uh, 70 to 80% of illnesses are entirely the result of people's lifestyle choices. So it doesn't matter if you rail against the government and achieve 5% lower taxes if you then get heart disease or cancer because you've been living badly. Which one makes you more free? Well, it's having a healthy body rather than spending your precious energies fighting the powers that be. Yeah, there's a couple of comments coming in here, like, treat your neighbors as your family. Thanks, Ponman, that's a good good one. Um, another question there from a bit, a bit back. Sorry, I have to scroll back here a bit. Um, yeah, uh, could you ask Stefan what is his idea of a society without statism would look like now? I know you talk about statism, you talk about anarchism, you know, conservatism, <laughs> capitalism, all these isms. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Let me take you on a journey. <laughs> yeah, statism, of course, is the idea that we need a monopoly minority of force to run society, right? So a small group of individuals with a monopoly uh, on the use of force, that that's the best way to run society. But let me take you on a journey. of a life. Let's pretend that tomorrow morning we wake up uh, in a world without government. Well, my friends, we will be awoken by clouds rising up from our beds and floating us... <laughs> across our rooms. Angels will weep sweet God's milk onto our tongues. Uh, we will be able to levitate, we will be able to walk through walls, and we will go to work uh, as um, exotic dancers 
and we would all have uh, great hips, great flexibility, great gyrations, and we would come home with massive amounts of money stuffed into our very tiny bikinis. Uh, and if that doesn't sell it to you, I have the alternative view, <laughs> which is that we, uh, we simply have a society of reason and peace and evidence. Uh, the initiation of force will be something that people accept as morally wrong, and anybody who suggests that we should initiate force to solve problems will be sort of akin to somebody who suggests that we grind up orphans and use them to feed cows that are hungry, or we bring back slavery, or we start beating up women, uh, and we start beating up pregnant women in order to please the volcano gods. I mean, it would just be something that would sound so morally ridiculous that uttering such a, such a silly statement like we should use force to solve social problems would probably get you some uh, consultation with a mental health specialist rather than... Um, be accepted as the general truism of society. So imagine, imagine a society where people rejected the initiation of force. So in an extremity of self-defense, a bear is running at you with a chainsaw, okay, fine, you know, make a bear rug. But if people rejected the initiation of force in society, just imagine what that would be like. No yelling at children, no hitting children, no intimidating children, no yelling at intimidating or hitting your husband or your wife, your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your friends. No trawling on the internet, which is just an emotional abuse, another way of, of attacking people's uh, well-being and mental security. Um, there would be uh, a, any problem that came up in society, and there will always be problems in society. That's the nature of reality. Uh, people will say, how can we best get together to work to solve this problem? Uh, we will have agencies out there in the world who are working to minimize and reduce conflicts. So, you know, in the U.S., um, violent crime has gone down by almost 20 to 25% over the past little while? Has the police budget gone down? And of course not. All they do is start prosecuting more innocent people in the war on drugs and so on. And so imagine a world where we didn't have the hammer of the state, where we didn't have the law, where we didn't have prisons, where we didn't have the truncheon of the policeman as our sole way of even imagining how we could solve social problems. Imagine if that gun, that truncheon, that that uh, hammer was taken away from us, then everything would stop looking like a nail. And you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Imagine, just imagine what it would be like if you had a problem with somebody or you had a social problem that was showing, say, well, how can we best get together and solve this voluntarily? Would there still be bad people in a free society? Yeah, of course there'll still be bad people in a free society. But so what? I mean, there are still crazy white supremacist racist jerks in the world right now, but that's not quite the same as there being slavery. Uh, they're easily avoidable, and they don't really have any impact on society as a whole. And so uh, it is a society where the world is accepted as round, the sun and the moon are accepted as being as different sizes, the sun is accepted as being at the center of the solar system, and the non-aggression principle and a respect for property rights are accepted as being the foundation for all civilized interactions. And that would be a beautiful world to live in. It's a world without unjust imprisonment. Uh, it's a world without war. It's a world without debt. It's a world without the brain-shredding propaganda that passes for education in the public schools. Uh, it, it, it is a world of the intense conservation of resources because nothing wastes resources in the world like governments. Just think of 10% of U.S. housing is sitting vacant. Think of all the trees that had to be cut down. Think of all of the steel that had to be dug up. Think of all the plastic that had to be fabricated. Think of all the paint that was slapped on those walls and think of all of the chemicals that went into making the grass grow. Think of how many resources were wasted just in the housing boom, just in the U.S. alone. And you'd have an intense uh, resource preservation because uh, in the free market is all about maximizing 
uh, returns, which is about trying to use as few resources as possible to get the maximum return. Not the case with government at all. So people would be educated very quickly. They would be free to travel wherever they wanted. There'd be no passports uh, the, because children would be raised peacefully. There'd be 95% less drug addiction and violence in society. Um, you could travel and go and work and do anything that you wanted. You'd be work for, you know, statistically, you'd be able to work for a day or two a week and sustain yourself in a very comfortable lifestyle. And the amount of progress in, in medicine and, and art and technology uh, and society as a whole would be staggering and unfathomable, unbelievable. There'd be no bullying in schools because that's the result of hurting traumatized children in age-specific categories rather than ability-specific categories. It would just be a world that would be so beautiful that it's really hard for us to imagine what it would look like. We get little glimpses of it here and there when we have a great time with someone. But imagine if that great time radiated outwards to the world as a whole and everybody accepted in a social sense what they already accept in their personal lives, which is you don't go around hitting people and throwing them in jail when they displease you. What a world. I would love to live in that world and I hope that technology advances to the point where they can freeze my big ass bald head <laughs> and put it uh, in, uh, uh, in a, um, an ice pack next to some haagen and uh, unfreeze me to see it but uh, I doubt I will see it in my lifetime. Yeah, it's, um, that's the thing, will we see this in our lifetime? Um, you know, I think we are the, the guardians of the earth at the moment and we have, to, we have a responsibility to to the, the, the generations that are coming behind us to make sure that we leave it in a good place for them so they can carry on what, what needs to be done on this, on this planet, you know, where we evolve as spiritual beings, if you want to call it that. You know, we need to uh, move away from all this kind of uh, um, things, materialism, you know. I think there was a great uh, comment, someone, some philosopher, I think, made the most important things in life aren't things. You know, we have to look beyond all that, and um, it's it's so. I think uh, they've done a very good job on humanity down through the last thousand or two thousand years. You know, they've programmed us to such a point where we don't even recognise that anymore. So it's going to take an awful lot of deprogramming to get us out of that, isn't it? Or can we? Will we wake up one day and suddenly, bang, everyone gets it? No, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. Um, the transmission of the truth depends upon the receptivity of the mind. And unfortunately, people's minds are sort of like foot-bound Chinese women from the 19th century. You know, where they, they forced their toes back into their heels and, and really warped and distorted all of their, their basically feet and, and ankles and, and heels. And they had to hobble around in this excruciating agony their whole lives. Uh, this was uh, the, 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 t the sort of tradition of the time. And you couldn't ever get a great running team out of those women. You might be able to make them hobble a little bit better, but you, you basically had to raise a generation of women in China. And it happened very quickly in a span of one generation. People just stopped doing this stuff. They just stopped torturing the feet of women in this way. And then, then you can begin to create a great set of athletes, a racing team, and, and so on. But you can't do it with the people whose bodies have been warped and mutated. And you can't do it 
Um, you know, you can't make a redwood out of a bonsai tree, and you can't, and vice versa. So I think that we have to focus on raising children peacefully uh, and raising children without violence, on raising children with the full respect that is due to them, which is even more respect than is due to your average adult, because children are in a state of unchosenness, right? They didn't choose their parents, they didn't choose their environment or their country. And so they need the most consideration of any human being of all, and if we give them that, then they will grow up with the capacity to reason. It's been scientifically demonstrated that children who are traumatized and hurt and upset uh, regularly throughout their childhood, whether it's through parental neglect or abuse or religious neglect or abuse uh, or, or through public schools or private schools even, that those children grow up with a significantly diminished capacity to think and therefore they can't usually be reached through reason any more than you can ask a footbound Chinese woman to climb a hill or a mountain. Uh, and so I think we need to recognize the damage that has been done to most people, and we need to sort of say, okay, we have to we have to have a new crop of people who are able to see reason and evidence, and the best way to do that is to raise our children and to encourage the raising of children without spanking, without uh, threats of abandonment and neglect, with at least one parent home during the formative years rather than tossing them off to daycare and strangers or even extended family. And if we do that, then reason will win. But unfortunately right now, the words of reason are falling upon ears that cannot hear and there's no way to make them hear because you can't undo the damage that's been done by a lifetime of indoctrination and and harm so we have to i think work on the next yeah. generation because unfortunately the children as you say being educated now they're in the hands of the government or the state for seven or eight hours a day and uh, for most families you know both parents are working just to try and make ends meet and um, there's a lot of kids out there who are not growing up the right way. You know, they're they're learning all the wrong things. They're stuck in front of a TV or a computer most of the time. But the parents can yeah, do something about it. that, they can. right? This is what I mean. My my car is 15 years old. I mean, <laughs> you know, I could get a new car, but that's less time with my sure. daughter. I mean, just just put aside the material greed or the keeping up with the Joneses or having a bigger enough a bigger house. Or I mean, I'm not saying that everybody who works is is in that situation, but um, you, people can, you know, move to a smaller town just for a couple of years. You know, people give up a lot of money to go to college. Uh, why not give up uh, a lot of money for a couple of years to re just the first couple of years? It's all that matters. It's the first three or five years of your kid's life. That's really the foundation of their personalities. If you can do that, uh, I think you've done more to make this world a better, a more peaceful and happier place than anybody who could conceivably run for office or vote or any books you could write or any speeches you could make or anything like that. So another question coming in from Bitchin Bob. Good night, Matt. This is, can you ask Stefan how could he see Ireland survive it if it defaulted on debts and declared itself sovereign again? Well, I mean, survive. I mean, how is it surviving well, now? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it would do what better. What it is is against course. the programming because we read in the papers that if this treaty isn't passed, we're doomed. No, what they're talking about, see, do not confuse the interests of the bankers with your interests. Do not confuse the interests of the ruling class with your interests. Um, what they're saying is, look, if we disconnect or have some separation from the EU, is that what the referendum is to some well, degree it's, about? Well, it's basically, it's, it's the fiscal treaty. It's about handing over the powers of our you know, financial, uh, what we do here, to another. Uh, 
Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, this is what they're saying is that we have. Yeah, so I'm uh, sorry, I, I misunderstood. By the way, so we've kind of, given it away to them. They will tell us how much taxes to be paid. Um, you know, all the usual stuff. It won't be coming from our right. So yeah, so I, I think I understand. So they're looking at Greece, and and Greece may be cooking up an exit scenario because it's such a basket case. So what they're saying in the EU is they're saying, look, we we don't have control over tax and spend policies in individual nations, but as a collective, we are responsible for the most irresponsible, right? This is why Germany, which has the most uh, surplus, is now paying off the Greek civil servants at the age of 50 who want to spend the rest of their lives on a Greek island somewhere. And so the EU was saying, look, if we're going to pay the bills, it's the old dad argument, right? <laughs> if, if I'm going to pay the bills, then I have to set the rules. If you are going to keep banging up my car, my car, if you want to bang up your car, that's your deal. But if you want to bang up my car, I'm taking away the keys. And so they're saying if the countries are not going to be responsible, then they have to give up some economic sovereignty. I think that's the basic argument, yeah. right? That's it, I think. Yeah, so, so, I mean, you just have to think about it. So if you're in charge, right, if you're in charge, what do you most desperately need at the moment if you're in charge of a country? Uh, in the European Union or North America, what you desperately, desperately, desperately need is access to capital. Because the amount of revenue that is generated through your tax receipts doesn't even come close to covering what it is that you need to pay, right? I mean, your unfunded liabilities and, and obligations, I mean, they're staggering. The amount of unfunded public sector pension debt is is ridiculous. The amount of unfunded uh, um, liability for the baby boomers retiring in terms of health care. It's ridiculous. So there's no way that governments have even close to enough money to cover their obligations. And that's at a time when interest rates are virtually zero and therefore the interest they're paying on their debt is, is very low. So governments at the moment simply cannot continue to do what they're doing if they do not get access to loans. And so they desperately need access to loans and so what is your government going to do? What would you do in their situation? Mm. That's a real question. If, if put on your evil hat, stroke your imaginary Stalin mustache, <laughs> and say, well, what would I do if I were in charge at the moment and, and was not, you know, a, a libertarian or voluntarist? Well, they're looking at bringing out the big stick and beating us into submission, really, isn't it? That's what the... No, you don't want to do that because that demoralizes your population. Yeah. And, and if your population gets demoralized then they get depressed, they get anxious, uh, they get lazy, so to speak, they don't want to work as much, and so, no, if your cows get depressed, you don't get as much milk out of them, so you don't want to beat up the cows, because that makes them too depressed. True, yeah. Um, again, I mean, there's, all, there's, there's a lot of solutions out there to the financial um, side of things. Um, did you ever hear of Mike? Well, and remember, it's not a real solution. It's not a real long-term solution. It's a solution that's going to keep you in power and make you as much money yeah. in the short run. But um, I think, uh, have you ever heard of um, Mathematically Perfected Economy, have you? Or Mike Mont I have, but let me, let me just finish this bit. We'll get on to that. So what I would do, I can, what I would do if I were in this situation, is I'd say, uh, I can't raise taxes to pay for my obligations. Right. Because there's not enough tax revenue in the country to, to even come close to covering any obligations. I mean, if, if they taxed all of the money of the top 1% of income earners, 100% taxation for the top 1% of income earners in the U.S., it would cover a couple of weeks of U.S. deficit spending. Mm -hmm. 
right? That, that there's no conceivable way that the taxes can be raised enough to cover the spending obligations the government has. So you, raising taxes, and plus, you really piss people off when you raise taxes. You get voted out of office, right? So you can't raise taxes, or if you can, it's just going to be a big, ugly battle. Now, your second option is to go to, say, the public sector unions or the old people and say, sorry, there is no money to pay you. Well, what happens if you do that? Well, that's it. Uh, I'll out and strike. And yeah, they go out and strike, and, and you get the government of Walker in Wisconsin. You get a recall election. You get sued. You get, you know, I mean, you get campaigns against you. You get hate mail. You get people stomping up and down your daffodils that you're in front of your house and and you get bricks thrown through your window and you get riots and you get water cannons and rubber bits and pe people die i mean that's not what politicians want to do either right i mean these are not morally brave people mm -hmm. right so they're not they, they can't you can't lower your spending and you can't raise your taxes right so what are you going to do well um do do you print our own money do we look after ourselves do we well, you can't print your own money because you're in the well, EU. Well, in the EU, yes, our hands are tied now, yeah, absolutely. Well, right, I mean, that's what, Greece, that's what Greece wants to do, is they want to have a soft default by devaluing yeah. their currency. But they can't do that, mm -hmm. right? Well, I mean, so it's, again, it's up to people in each country. Do they want, uh, in, in, a, in the EU and the euro, or out? And go back to their own currencies? Well, I'll yeah. tell you what, what, what they're going to do. What they're going to do is they're going to give up sovereignty in return for yeah. loans. Because if you can't raise taxes and you can't pay what you got, and you don't want to, if you can't raise your taxes and you can't cut your spending, then you just need to borrow more. I mean, this is like the cocaine addict. He's going to get more cocaine. And whatever, you know, cocaine addicts will sell their kidney to get cocaine. They'll sell their grandmother. And so the idea that they're going to not want to give up sovereignty in return for debt, I mean, they're going to. I mean, politicians love power. The power is as addictive physiologically as cocaine. And so they don't want to give up their hit of power. Uh, they don't want to uh, get lots of people angry at them. Uh, so they're going to give up some sovereignty in return for getting money. And now the money, of course, is nonsense. I mean, there's no one who's running a surplus in the EU, so it's all just magic printed nonsense, all monopoly money. But it staves off the disaster uh, for just another little bit. Of course, it makes the disaster worse when it finally comes. But that's what they're going to do is they're going to give up their sovereignty uh, in order to just buy another year or two uh, of uh, of debt payments until they're out of office and then just let you know the next hapless sack inherit the problem that's why libertarians should not be running for office because man if you're holding that bag when it goes off you just remember it's the eternal terrorist mm -hmm. yeah so um when you look at libertarians such as ron paul and what do you why do you think is he on the right track i mean i, I hear what he says and i agree with an awful lot he says but i again i don't know i mean and again you got to look at governments are corporations. They're there trading for profit. They're not, you know, you come uh, a distant second in all of this, you know. So, um, it really, you know, and you, you talk about this yourself, do we need to go to some kind of, like, anarchy? I mean, I know people think anarchy is kind of and whatever, but that's not what the word means at all. Do you want to maybe go into that a little bit? Is, 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 yeah, sure. Is, I mean, this is where we anarchy need to, be, to be looking at. Where we, is this where we need to be heading for? Uh, I mean, well, our, uh, you know, anarchy. You know, yeah. I mean, people use the word anarchy, and I, you know, I, I understand that people have issues with it. But anarchy means means two things, really. Basically, the first thing anarchy technically means is like this is what the actual definition is: without rulers, right? People always take one R away from that, and they think it's without rules. <laughs> 
No, 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 no. It is without rulers. Right, so two people who are playing chess according to the rules of chess, do they have a third party telling them where to move their pieces or what's legal or not? No. If you had a third party who could make up your chess rules as you were playing, that would be lawlessness. That would be chaos. That would be unpredictable. That would be crazy. But if you have two people who both agree on the same rules playing chess, there's no ruler. There are rules, but they both agree on. But there's no ruler who's arbitrarily deciding that your rook can move this way and your pawn can move this Oh, I changed my mind. Now they can move this way and they can move this way. What we currently have right now is actually all the attributes that are traditionally ascribed to anarchy, which is we have chaos, we have lawlessness, we have social conflict, we have an unsustainable situation, we have riots in the streets, we have in debt, we have, I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible what has happened to society under the state, and it always will be. And so technically anarchy means without a ruler, without somebody who's got a gun to your neck telling you what to do based upon whatever arbitrary whims they can shove through a highly power addicted and highly financially dependent upon donors legislative body. That's chaos. That's madness. That is just having no rules whatsoever because, I mean, in the U.S. they pass like a hundred thousand new laws every year. Nobody has any clue what's legal or not. Nobody has any clue how to stay on the right side of the law. There is no right side of the law. And so that to me is, that's what is traditionally called anarchy is currently exactly what we have. So anarchy first and foremost means without rulers. Now if that's hard for people to understand, all it means is non-violence. That's all anarchy means. It's non-violence. Because how do people rule? They rule through the threat of force. Obey me, or I'm going to send a bunch of guys in blue or black costumes to your house with guns who are going to put you in a box and take you to a little cage and lock you in that cage uh, until your teeth fall out. Uh, so the way that there, when you say no rulers, what you mean is no violence, no institutionalized, hierarchical, oligarchical, pyramidical, <laughs> political violence. That's all Anarchy means is no little group of guys with all the guns in the world who get to lock other people up in cages if they disagree with them. And that really isn't that hard a thing to understand. I mean, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of propaganda about it and all. It means no rulers and no guns to people's necks to force them to obey a little group of narcissistic sociopaths. <laughs> that's all it really means. And that's how we run our lives. That's how we run our lives. Look, let's say I'm overweight and I want to lose weight. There's almost nobody in the world who would say, I am going to give a guy a gun. I'm going to disarm myself. I'm going to give a guy a gun, and I'm going to call him Butch Cassidy, the nutritionist. And what I'm going to do is, if I eat something that's not good for me, he's going to take a shot at me. And if I keep doing it, he's going to start shooting off a finger. And if I keep doing it, he's going to start shooting off a hand. And... That's how I'm going to solve my problem of weight gain. I mean, that's just not how people... People don't think I'm going to give a guy a monopoly on violence against me in order to solve my personal problems. Well, how the hell are personal problems any different from social problems uh, as a whole? I mean, it's just people after all, right? And so whether the guy's shooting off your fingers or just dragging you off to a cage doesn't really... You know, if somebody has a problem, they think, oh, I'm, I'm smoking too much marijuana. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire a guy. If he finds marijuana on me, he's going to put a gun to my neck He's going he's to kick on my door, put a gun to my neck, and drag me off to uh, a cage, to some disused rhino cage in the back ass of an abandoned zoo, and he's going to lock me up there. I mean, nobody, you, you try selling that service through the yellow pages, you know, <laughs> improvement or caging <laughs> incorporated. That's just not how people 
try and solve problems in their life. I mean, they, they may succeed or they may fail, but nobody ever says, I'm going to give a guy the right to use force against me if I go against even what I want, let alone what other people want. So it's just a recognition that we are the world. We are the people. You know, There's nothing magically different about social problems than our personal problems. We would never invent what's called a state to solve our own personal problems. So why on earth would we accept something that was just historically inflicted on us through the accidents and accumulations of generally moral crimes throughout human history. It's just like if you look at your family and your home where you live and, and you're just, you, you have your own little kind of basic set of rules where you don't damage anything or hurt anybody or call anybody names, you know, and everyone tries to be peaceful. And it works, you know. But when we, when we go outside and, we, you know, you can't park here, you can't drive over this speed limit or, you know, and then you're going to get tickets and we're going to do this and we're going to extort you. Uh, it's crazy, you know, and we're living in this kind of duality where we 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 live peacefully. We're most people are nice to their neighbours, you know. Most people are friendly and outgoing. Yep. But yet we put up with this this other stuff, which is just why, you know. And that's what I try to say to right. people: Why do you allow this? Yeah, explain to me the disparity between your personal life and the life that you imagine from some society. I mean, what, what the hell is the difference? Uh, society is just a whole bunch of people, and those people have successes and failures. They have problems uh, that need to be solved, and not a, not a person among them, right, would, would, would get together. I mean, let's say you have a problem with a loud dog in your neighborhood. You don't get together with your neighbors and say, okay, one person gets a gun, and it gets to drag that dog away and shoot the owner if he resists, and that's how we're going to solve the problem. No, you go over, you talk to the guy, and maybe you ostracize him if he doesn't. You know, maybe you don't invite him to the block party or whatever it is. You make his life different. Who knows? But this, you don't just grab guns and then wave them at people and think you're solving problems. But then when you flip over to the state, to the nation, to society as a whole, it's like everything's completely different. Um, but, I mean, we've got a long history of that. I mean, unfortunately, religion trains people in that way, right? So... You know, so so suddenly the people in power have the complete opposite morality from from that which they command, right? So the people in power in the state say, "Don't use force to get what you want, don't steal, don't counterfeit." And then, of course, that is the actual foundation of their entire policy set: is the initiation of force and and theft through taxation and counterfeiting through fiat currency. And so they have these rules that they violently inflict upon the population, which is actually the foundation of their own power. And when a private citizen does it, it's completely evil. When a public citizen does it, uh, it, it when a, quote, public citizen, a politician does it, it is, it is virtuous. It is right. It is how things should be. But religion has trained us in this for many years, right? So if you look at the Old Testament deity, Yahweh, well, uh, he says, thou shalt not kill. Killing is wrong. Uh, unless a lot of people are really pissing me off that I'm going to send a rain down to drown everyone except Noah, his family, and 12,000 animals. Right? He kills the whole world. And so this is the thing. You say, well, thou shalt not kill. Uh, that's your fundamental moral rule. But then God he goes around basically blowing everyone up. The man's like, uh, like missile command <laughs> with a losing trackball. Uh, he just goes around blowing everyone up in the Old that's Testament. Right. But you're not allowed to point out that contradiction and say, well, wait a second. <laughs> if God says thou shalt not kill because it's evil and God kills all the time, then God must be evil. I mean, that's the, obviously that is not even complicated logically. But, but we're so trained to not see the opposite morality of those in power, the moral commandments that they give us that damn them infinitely more than they could ever damn us. I mean, there's no human being that can kill everyone. Only God can do that. 
and this is just one of uh, six billion examples that, that you could pick out of any. It's not to pick on the, the Old Testament God. I mean, all the gods are ridiculous that way. But we're so well trained to, to, uh, to believe that the moral commandments are hurled down like thunderbolts from the gods of on high who are never touched by them and must never be judged by that which they inflict upon their livestock. But, but to extend morality vertically, to extend thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not counterfeit, thou shalt not initiate violence, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not assault, to extend that vertically eliminates any and all moral justifications for the state. And it eliminates the, uh, any and all moral justifications for the virtue of a deity. But, of course, we're all trained that the rules are handed down by the masters, and the masters, it is evil to disobey the rules of the masters, and it is evil to hold the masters to the same rules they inflict upon us. Uh, this is just so core to the hierarchies that are currently destroying society that it's really hard to, to see for most people. Right, I was just um, a couple of more questions coming in. Does Stefan think that the rulers are sorry, does Stefan think yeah, that the rulers are government are the real rulers? Uh, do they yeah, so I don't know like I suppose he means do they think they've got a they're entitled, I mean. Oh yeah. Are they like shadowy overlords behind the obvious overlords, is that right? Yeah, I think that's probably what he's trying to get there. Well, I mean I think everyone accepts that a small minority of pasty-faced, usually tubby white guys have a tough time ruling the world. And so everyone's like, well, how, how the hell does this all happen? How does Silvio Berlusconi, you know, this <laughs> fat old Italian guy, how does he keep the young vital energies of the Italian youth at bay? I mean, they could take him with one hand, right? So I think everyone kind of gets that there's got to be some shadowy stuff going on because these, you know, you see a picture of these, I don't know, I see a picture of these guys at the GA7 or the G20, uh, these men and women. I just picture them all naked. I mean, because <laughs> I just think it's, I mean, they're just a bunch of men and women. Oh. Uh, they're no smarter. They're, you know, they obviously have some political charisma and some adeptness at manipulation and so on, capacity for verbal abuse and praise, public speaking and so on. But that you know, just a bunch of people, and and the idea that feel that they're fit to to run the levers of the world is is ridiculous and embarrassing, and will be viewed as a pathological mental illness in the years to come. But I think everyone understands that they can't do it on themselves. There's got to be something else. Now people say, "Oh my God, there's a Jewish conspiracy." I mean, the bankers or this uh, uh, lizard men. I mean, I I don't really accept any of that. I, I you know, having studied philosophy for so long, the real rulers of the world are philosophers. I'm certainly not the first person to come up with this, no, no particular intelligence on my part. But, you know, when, when people say, well, if you don't like this country, you can just leave it. As maybe they think they're coming up with something original, but that's straight out of Socrates' uh, death speech from 2,500 years ago. When people say, um, if you don't vote, you don't have the right to complain, they're coming up with arguments that are are really, really old. When they say, well, without the government, it'll all descend into chaos, they're coming straight out of Hobbes' Leviathan. They don't know that these dead white guys are sticking their hands up their butt and making their mouths move <laughs> with nonsense syllables. They don't know that, but they're just repeating nonsensical, power-serving lies told by philosophers throughout the ages. You know, when people say, you know, there's no such thing as right and wrong, there's only the pragmatism of, of, of what works 
Uh, well, there's just Henry James, American pragmatism, a little bit of Nietzsche thrown in um, when they are uh, a pro-state and anti-religious, as you tend to be on the left, or they're anti-state and pro-religious on the right. They don't understand that they're just going through the basic duality of Greco-Roman versus Christian theological thought. I mean, they're, they're, no, they're not thinking for themselves. They're just echoing the slow-rolling, mossy-covered, dead-skull boulders that have been rolling down the hill ever since these dead white guys put parchment to paper, a pen to paper. And so I believe that what is behind all of these immediate rulers is these large, unchallenged thoughts that uh, people don't even may, may have may probably never read in the original they've just probably absorbed them through newspaper columns and and books and popular movies or whatever but what makes all of this stuff work is the unchallenged erroneous axioms and arguments of long dead philosophers and that's where i've chosen to take my stand and fight my good fight because i think until we can think correctly a society won't even come close to working Morally. Okay, and um, I have another question there. Um, sick. Uh, something about the oh, sorry, I'm scrolling back here. There's a lot of comments. The chat box is flying here tonight. Um, well, what is the source of a man's rights? A man's rights, if it's not well, there. Yeah, there. Look, a, a man obviously doesn't have rights like a, like he has a kidney, right? I mean, it, it's not like an appendage that hangs off you, you know, that you've got to soap up in the shower and <laughs> dry off. Uh, there is no rights that are attached to you. They are not woven through the essence of your being. Rights inhabits a human being in the same way that we imagine a soul inhabits a body. Like there's some eternal essence of virtue or truth or righteousness or goodness or freedom or something that somehow attaches to the material. But of course, as a rabid pro-scientific empiricist, I can't grant the existence of rights. They, they don't exist. They, um, they, they don't attach to the material. Uh, they, you know, consciousness is an effect of the brain, like gravity is an effect of matter, but rights are not an effect of... Um, uh, of being alive or, or being rational or being independent. So I, I don't think that rights is a clear way to, to talk about things. What I do think is that um, I sort of equated ethics with universally preferable behavior. And uh, so if you're going to make a statement about ethics, it has to be a statement that is universally preferable to all people at all times in all geographical locations. It's truly be universal. I mean, I like pistachio ice cream is not a statement of ethics because it's personal to me and, you know, maybe shared by other people, but it's not. Everybody has to like pistachio ice cream. Um, in science, you know, everybody has to be rational and everybody has to submit to the evidence, to empirical evidence. If you, you don't have to do that, but if, you, if you're not doing that, you're not doing science. You know, if, if you're saying, you know, the, the Wiccan witch doctor newt-eyed owl on my shoulder is telling me what this equation is, you're doing something weird, but you're not doing science. And so if you're going to do science, you've got to subject to reason and evidence. And if you're going to do morality, you've got to have universally preferable behavior. And so the non-initiation of force uh, is amply justified by universally preferable behavior. In other words, um, murder cannot be achieved uh, as a universally preferable behavior. If we say everyone must murder all the time, that can't logically be achieved. It is a self-detonating proposition. 
right? Even just two guys in a room can't both murder each other at the same time. I mean, even if they could physically somehow do it, they can't do it philosophically. They can't do it logically because murder has to be something that is unwanted, right? Just like rape has to be something that's unwanted. Otherwise, it's just, I don't know, kinky rough play or something. But, uh, you know, rape and murder and theft and assault, these have, these have to be things that are unwanted. Uh, if, if I lend something to someone, it's not theft. So if, I, if it's okay with me that they take something, it's, it's lending, it's not theft. And so you can't have theft, rape, murder, and assault as universally preferable behavior because it means that two guys in the same room have got to both want these things and violently oppose these things at the same time. Logically, that it's like saying a rock should fall up and down at the same time. It doesn't work. So that is a real brief, and I've got a free book on my website at freedomainradio.com forward slash free. Uh, people can check out the, you know, the more detailed arguments for the system of ethics. So the non-initiation of force is, you know, and the respect for property rights are the two basic things that are validated by this universally preferable behavior theory of ethics, which I think is good. I mean, I go with Aristotle who says, if your theory of ethics can be used to prove that rape is really good, I don't care what you say, you've done something wrong. <laughs> it's just not the right way in some way. And so I, I think that to talk about rights is to, it's, it's like doctors talking about the soul. I mean, even if you believe in the soul, it's not the province of doctors and it's not the province of, of rationalists or, or, or philosophers to talk about the soul because you know, there's no material evidence and you know, it doesn't have it attached to the body. There's no, there's no way to detect it. And so it, it's exactly the same as not existing. And so I think we've got to pass, got to pass away from the non-material uh, because Rights is fine if you get someone to accept that you have rights, then you've got a kind of weird contract between the two of you or an implicit contract. And so rights is like dieting for thin people. You know, uh, rights only works with people who respect them. And if people don't respect them, then you're shit out of luck, you've got no rights. And so the real challenge with virtue is to get people who don't agree with it to obey it or at least recognize its authority. And so I'm really trying to aim the, the diet book at the fatties. And so I really want to make sure that people who don't agree with something like a, the non-aggression principle are bound to accept it based upon the rigor of the arguments. And with rights, you're just kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that someone's going to accept them. And if they don't, then they just don't exist. And I, I'm not a big one for crossing my fingers and trying to leap across a chasm like that. Yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Brehan Law, um, Stefan. I have, but my expertise on it is probably not, not much beyond that. Those, those two syllables. Irish law system, which, we, which was here for 8,000 years, maybe, I don't know. As old as the rocks, anyway. And basically, that system was based on anarchy, the way you described it as. Uh, but it was a perfect law. Yeah, it was 800 years, I think, that Ireland was in a state of statelessness. And um, a very progressive, I mean, again, it's all about non-violence. And, you know, even under common law, you can, you know, the injured party can call for an execution of the, you know, the perpetrator of the crime. But under Brehan law, that doesn't uh, exist, you know. But um, you can, the, the, whoever the victim is can call for whatever punishment, as long as there's no one gets hurt. And I think that's right. a really... Yeah, and, and the punishment for anyone who fails is, is to, to obey the punishment yeah, is ostracism. Exactly, right? but I mean, again, the thing is, if you're living in a, in a free society like that, no one's going to hurt anybody anyway. So, Well, it's going to be very rare. Like Some guy's going to get a brain tumor, and he's going to end up strangling some guy because he's crazy, because he's got a brain tumor. Uh, but that's really a tragic illness, uh, rather than it is uh, conscious evil. And I think, you know, we have that system here, and we can bring back the basic tenets of that. And... There we go, you know, it's all here. It's spread it worldwide, you know, for everybody. 
Get back to your roots. Yeah. That's yeah. right. So, um, Stefan, I said you, you said you come on for an hour and a half. I mean, are you still tied to that? or? Yes, I do actually have something else, uh, but I'm happy to go for another 10 minutes or so if you have any more questions. Problem, yeah. Is this helpful? I'd be just wondering if you oh, can ask people yeah, in the chat room uh, if this is useful absolutely. and helpful and interesting to people. I, I always want to make sure that I'm doing something useful or interesting. There's um, another interesting comment um, as well earlier from Michael Hottinger. It says, science is greater than empiricism. empiricism. What is metaphysics classically understood? And how much does love weigh? What color is justice? And he says, there are spiritual realities that transcend empiricism. Any comments on that? Sure. I mean, metaphysics is really, of course, this is the nature and the study of, of what is reality. And it is uh, really for, it, there's a duality in metaphysics, right? So there's the traditional Arist Aristotelian realm where they say, you know what's real is the stuff that you can touch, taste, measure, smell, you know, whatever. I mean, the stuff that you can ping a sonar off and have it come back to you, uh, the, the stuff that you can bounce a light off and have it come back to you, the stuff that you can wrap with your knuckles, that's the real stuff in the world. And that's really all, all there is. And that's, um, uh, that's, that's the traditional Aristotelian, uh, Lockean, uh, uh, Randian view of the world. It's one that I share uh, because I just don't have the capacity to project my imagination uh, into the world and think that things that aren't there are there. Uh, but on the other side, of course, you've got this whole mystical realm, which basically, I mean, it, it's, it's Plato, a Platonic realm of pure forms. It's, it's uh, the Augustinian realm of, of heaven. Uh, it, is, um, it, it really comes down to the, the, the idea that the will of the majority is also falls into this mystical realm. Because there's the will is an attribute of the individual. Uh, it is not an attribute of anything called a majority. Uh, and so the will of the majority is just another mystical thing that, that sort of people make up to justify bad things that they do. Um, and so metaphysics is basically saying, well, what is real? And the, the Platonists will say, well, everything that you can touch is kind of a weird, pathetic, decayed shadow of that which is real. And that which is real is stuff that we experience before we were born or after we're dead in this perfect world of heaven or pure forms or whatever. And so this, this little you know, material realm that we're trapped into is just a pale shadow of the true, ideal, perfect God realm of, of infinite beauty, goodness, truth, and light, and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's, a, it's a lovely, compelling, you know, shove a birthday cake up your ass and ride on a horse of delusion kind of lovely uh, thought. But, the, you know, it, it suffers from the rather heavy problem that, that it doesn't exist, <laughs> right? I mean, that there's no evidence for it whatsoever. And, uh, you know, this is, there's two ways of solving the problem of universals. Like, how do we know a table is a table? Plato said, well, we know a table is a table because before we were born, we were floating in a world of pure forms and we saw a perfect table. And then after we're born, we see these echoes. And, I mean, I think that's a very interesting bunch of nonsense. Uh, I wouldn't even tell that story to a child. It's so insane. You know, but again, it suffers from the not insignificant problem that it's false in every <laughs> conceivable way, that we don't exist before we were born. We don't have senses before we were born. There is no such thing as a concept that exists independent of the thought that creates it. Uh, it just, it's false in every conceivable level that you could imagine, and dangerously false as well. And so when somebody says, uh, I'm following the will of the majority or democracy is there to enact the will of the majority, what they're basically saying is, I want to tell other people what to do, but I don't want to say it that baldly, so I'm going to make up this other nonsense, right? Like the, the priest doesn't want to say, obey me. He wants to say, well, obey my imaginary friend called God who's telling me what to tell you. It's not me. Don't blame me. Blame this you know, big teddy bear in the sky called God. He's telling you what to do. It's not my fault. 
Uh, but basically he's just telling you what to do. He's just calling it God rather than himself telling you what to do. And the same thing is true of the state, right? Obey the law. Well, the law doesn't exist, isn't it? <laughs> it's just a bunch of opinions. It's a law is an opinion with a gun. Uh, so what they're saying is obey me, but they want to say the law because you know, it's less likely to provoke your resistance if you say the law. And so, yeah, so when you study metaphysics, you're saying, well, what, what, what is real and what is not real? What exists and what doesn't exist? What is the things and the spaces between the things? And, you know, we've got this long tradition of stuff existing in some perfect realm and all of this stuff is just a pale shadow of it. And it's all complete and total bullshit that is used to manipulate, control, and subjugate people. Uh, because the people who all claim to know this perfect realm can never quite explain it to you, but because they know this perfect realm, they're the philosopher kings and they're the priests and they're the politicians, well, you just have to obey it, you see, because they can't quite explain it to you, but trust me, it's perfect and you've got to obey it. Yeah. Uh, well, no, uh, I will obey reason and evidence. I will not obey mysticism and delusion. And uh, so uh, as far as the color of justice goes, uh, I have always assumed that it's um, plaid uh, for reasons that I really can't go into yeah. here. I mean, I, I myself feel that uh, I think we are conscious beings and we are made up of uh, energy, if you want to call it that. I mean, I just just going from my own experiences, but I, I don't push it on people, you know. I just kind of, if people want to talk about it, fair enough. But, you know, certain things that have happened to me which you, you can't explain, you know. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a kind of evidence for it, but it just seems to happen. Well, you see, the problem is when you say that things can't be explained, you're making a claim for human knowledge that goes forward to infinity. That's a pretty dangerous position to take, right? I mean, saying that no human being will ever be able to explain stuff which I can't explain at the moment is a very well, you, uh, brave, I would uh, say, to the point of foolhardy proposition. Sorry, you can ahead. explain what happened or what you saw or whatever, but how would, why, you know, it's kind of... Um, and it does kind of then people think, well, is there um, uh, another deity or a god, or is there alien life forms out there who are controlling things? Because uh, you know, just a few things that I've witnessed myself, but um, you know, strange lights and stuff like that. And uh, well, I can I pretty pretty sure that aliens. I mean, of course, there are aliens out there. I mean, yeah. there's billions of galaxies and you know, hundreds of billions of, of star systems and so on. Of course, but but as far as UFOs go, I mean. The only way that any alien is going to be able to develop the technology for interstellar travel is, is if they have a free market, right? It's never going to be a government program. It's not going to be able to do that. Government programs can barely even make two train tracks meet together in a desert. And so, you know, if you look at how technology froze under NASA, they're still using the same space shuttle 30 years later after watches have gone from, you know, sorry, after cell phones have gone from uh, telephone booths to things that stick in your inner ear. Uh, so the only way that UFOs are ever going to show up here is if they're bringing a mall with them, if they're traders, if they're free market capitalists. If you know, That's the only way they're going to get that technology. It's not going to come out of a government program. So until the international mall of nine-headed space aliens open up on the front house of the lawn, uh, of the White House lawn, uh, you know, it's just it's the only way that they're going to show up is if they've got stuff to trade. And um, uh, anything else, I think, is... Um, uh, is is not particularly credible to me, at least, until there's real clear scientific evidence either way. Yeah, actually, we'll just go back to um, the question I brought up earlier about mathematically perfected economy. You have heard of it, haven't you, uh, Mike Montagne? I have, but again, my expertise is very, 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 very minimal. Well, it's just um, it's a, a wonderful solution, and unfortunately, Mike is having a lot of trouble trying to get it out there. But uh, it, I think it's some it's difficult to kind of explain in some ways, but the basics of it is that. You just take interest out of the whole equation, 
and money is like created from your signature, which makes the promissory note. And when the promissory note is used and finished with you, it's it's out of circulation, and you you start again, and there's no debt, you yeah. know. Um, according to Mike, if all governments adopt this, that's it. You know, all our financial woes are over. Debt is eliminated. Uh, even outstanding debt that we have at the moment, because we've all contributed in the past, it's it's um. It, it can be all wiped, you know. So uh, sure, but I mean, there's a lot more to it I, because there know. there is it's detailed. I think it's not so much difficult to understand. It's just quite very detailed. And uh, I mean, you obviously you could say that. But governments will never, even if that were true, I mean, governments would never do it. Oh, I mean, the whole point of governments is they have to be able to give you at least offer you something for nothing. I Sorry? think he even tried to do it in Iceland. I think the, the Icelandic government were were interested, but I'm not sure how that happened. Right? Well, it doesn't look like they've adopted it because I think they would have adopted it by now, you know. Yeah. No, I mean, a, a government without debt is not a government. I mean, the whole system runs on debt because you have to be able to bribe voters. Uh, and if you bribe them with stuff you've taken from other voters, then you create as many enemies as friends and you can't get elected. So you have to borrow in order to be able to give something to people with the illusion of giving them something for free. And uh, I mean, that game is almost at the end of its rope. But there's, governments are not going to adopt a debt-free society because statism is debt. Uh, you, you simply can't, I mean, in particular a democracy, you, you simply can't run a democracy which is really a bribocracy, you can't run it without going into debt because then everything you give to the voters is immediately taken back in taxes and the whole gig is up right away. So, um, you know, even if this, uh, I mean, if people want to run a system with no interest, I think that's fine. I mean, I think there is a time value to money, but I mean, I would never use force to stop someone from doing that. But the idea that governments are going to adopt this, I, I mean, it's just never going to happen. I mean, there's, there's, the people who get into power understand that they have to give people the illusion of something for nothing. And the only way to do that is through debt. So it's not going to happen. And, uh, Michael's just come back with another question. He said uh, on the last topic, he says, uh, what is wrong with, with having the humility to admit that reality transcends my human reason? Well, I mean, make, you know, Prove it to me. I mean, it, it, it's not it's not a matter of humility or not. It's just a matter of, of facts or not. Uh, if if somebody wants to show me that there's something out there that is that exists, then they did, all they have to do is is you know do it. You know, if if somebody wants to show me that a golf ball exists uh, behind their back, you know, show me the golf ball. I'm not going to commit to a golf ball existing behind somebody's back unless they show it to me, or I can see it with mirrors or something, or. I don't know, send an x-ray through their groin and find the golf ball past the two. I don't know. But um, if somebody wants to show me, or show anyone for that matter, that, that something exists, uh, then um, you know, take the standard of proof that is rational and empirical and, and show that. Uh, but um, to just assert that something exists that is counter to reason and evidence is simply to say that that which does not exist exists. I mean, philosophically, it just that can't, that can't work. It doesn't work. It's, not hum it's, it's humility to say, I, my imagination doesn't create reality. You know, there's nobody more humble than an empiricist. There's nobody more humble than a rationalist. Because just because I want something to exist, like eternal life, like angels, like fairies, like uh, leprechauns with their pots of gold, it's having the humility to say, just because I want something to exist or I can imagine something existing, that doesn't make, mean that it exists. The humility is to say that my imagination is bound by reason and evidence. That, that is a humble statement. Saying that something exists just because I want it to or I was told that something exists or it'd be nice if something did exist, I mean, that is a crazy kind of intellectual arrogance that, that is unjustified uh, philosophically. Okay, and um, 
Let me just finish off. There's two two questions here that are kind of similar. Is, is one is does Stephen think think that his kids will be will have a great life and be okay when they become adults? And then if Stephen, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, if I thought they did, that they would, I would work a lot less hard in philosophy. Uh, if I thought they wouldn't, I doubt I would have had kids. I think that the quality of my kids' life is at least to some degree to do with how much I and others are willing to work to try and achieve a free and reasonable society for them. So I was not so helpless and hopeless that I felt that not having kids was the only solution. But I'm also not so... Uh, I'm not, I, don't, I don't believe enough that it's going to happen without my input that I'm not going to do it. So, I, you know, it's like saying, do you think you'll get to shore? Well, I will if I keep paddling, but I'm not going to rely on the tide. And uh, the other question is, I suppose what we, we like to ask guests is about solutions, what uh, our own solutions, what uh, we all can do, what you're doing yourself. And I think this question is like, what, is there anything you could do that would change the world for the better? Well, sure, uh, yeah. I mean... It's, um, you know, I, I, I'm always beating this drama. I'll beat it again. I mean, uh, the, this, the evidence, the science, the, the psychology, the, the, the physiology, the, me the medical knowledge is, is all very clear that to have a peaceful world, we need to raise our children peacefully. There's no shortcuts. There's no one guy you can vote into office who's going to make the world a better place for you. There's no vote that you can drop in a vote that you can drop in a ballot box is going to make the world a better place. This is a slow and steady wins the race. You know, we, we have kids or those who we know who have kids or any kids we have any kind of influence over. We encourage uh, peaceful and positive and non-aggressive parenting and that creates human beings who will have the capacity to reason and the capacity to live peacefully and who will not be addicted to drugs, sex, politics, dysfunctional behaviors, criminality and so on. That's how we do it. I've got a whole video series called The Bomb in the Brain. People can pick it up at fdrurl.com forward slash BIB. And uh, that steps everyone with expert interviews through the science of how peaceful parenting brings about a peaceful world. Um, you just live the values in your life, and that's how they transmit themselves through the world. That's the most accurate, compelling, and actionable statement that I can make. Live peace, and the world will be peaceful. And living peace is in your life. It is not in politics or in economics or in academia. It is in your personal relationships with people. Mm -hmm. Reject, issue, and abjure the use of violence in your life, and it shall spread surely as um, paint spreads in water. It will spread to the world as a whole. Yeah, yeah that's good. Um, actually, those questions are flying in now, Stefan. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, but I do, do I have, do to, have go, to jump. Yeah. Uh, perhaps we can do this again. Oh, yeah, please, we, we please, please do that. Thank again, yourself. Because, sorry, go ahead. Um, there's a lot here to go into, and uh, so people are beginning to come out now with lots of questions, so which I'd like to, to catch up. Yeah, well, maybe we can do it again, but listen, do, do thank your listeners uh, so much for, for their input. I really do appreciate your time and questions as well. It was a most enjoyable conversation, and uh, I hope we can do it we again will sometime. Indeed, Stefan. And do you want to give a plug again to Radio Freedom Main Radio com? Bam, 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 bam. Yes, Free Domain Radio. Um, it's at freedomainradio.com, of course. Um, people can catch me. There's a whole, uh, on the front page there, the homepage, there's a speaking tour that I'm on this summer. Um, you can catch me in early June. I'm hosting the Peter Schiff Radio Show, and I'm hosting the Corbett Report uh, on Monday nights. You can check that out uh, online, corbettreport.com with two Ts. So, yeah, I'm, 
I'm everywhere, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope that people will check out the material. And thanks again Excellent. for your time. Thanks very much, Stefan. And uh, you know, we'll get you on again maybe a couple of months down the line. See how things develop then. I'm sure it'll get more interesting, more to Take talk care, about. Man. Thanks a lot, Stefan. And uh, we'll get you back again soon. So everybody, that's Stefan uh, Molyneux there. Thanks for joining us, Stefan. And we'll um, I'll go and play a bit of music now, and I'll come back to you after that. Okay. Thanks a lot.